Rwando podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit Rwando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library. Enjoy the show. According to the podcast, or according to your definition, master nobility is when there is no separation between a person's will and a person's action. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I heard that, I thought a lot about kids and how we're kind of born uh, in that state of like a child doesn't really lie. A child is very vulnerable in their power. A child is always pushing boundaries. So is it safe to say that children are kind of we're all kind of born into that master nobility from the get go? Master morality. Yeah, I th- uh, kind of. I mean, I think it starts really young that like depending on how you're parents or your environment treats you, you know, at, at, I think around the terrible twos is probably when someone either diverts from master morality or diverts from their nobility. I guess like nobility is kind of like the natural state to your point. Uh, but some people at a very young age learn, oh, I can't be myself. Therefore I need to morph who I am to be liked or to be accepted or not get hurt by my, my actual masters who are when you're two years old are your parents or whoever's raising you. So I think someone who, who's raised in a healthy way grows up still feeling for the most part that I can do or like my, my feelings and my desires are valid. Whereas maybe someone with uh, who's like oppressed at a, from the beginning of their life grows up in slave morality, feeling like, Oh, I can't be myself. I have to morph myself or change myself to, to exist basically. So then would, would slave morality just be a part of socialization and, you know, becoming a productive member of society? I think it's part of it. I think, uh, you know, obviously like the way Nietzsche says it, I mean, slave morality sounds really bad as opposed to like being more communal or whatever. But, um, and I think he was kind of attacking Marxism as well. But I think, you know, as I talked about in the podcast, everyone's got a little bit of slave morality in them and we should, like, we shouldn't just think we're the only person that matters at all times. But as far as our individual psychology goes, if someone's like really heavily weighted on slave morality, what we would now today say is like, oh, they have no boundaries. Like we identify now that's not a good thing, right? Like uh, you should at least have like personal agency. And then the master, if you're really in your master morality, you can choose to sacrifice something of yourself for other people, or you can choose to go without for the sake of people you care about, but not in a way that it's reactive and you don't have choice. That's, that's the difference. It's like, have you seen clockwork? Have you seen clockwork orange? I haven't. I don't know if, I don't know if I might've mentioned this in this episode. Uh, I've definitely mentioned in some podcasts where like, uh, basically the guy's a criminal, uh, really fucked up criminal. He's doing all this bad stuff. Um, he goes into this program where they basically brainwash him to not have, or to, to feel sick every time he has a, a violent thought. And there's this guy who's like his uh, mentor, who's, who's like fighting for his rights. And he's basically like, he says the theme of the movie, which is if you don't have choice, there's no real morality. Like if you, if you can't choose to be good or evil, if you're like, you're, if you're forced into being good, you're not really a good person necessarily because you didn't choose it. And I, that's what I think about when I think about like, you have to be in, you have to be in a noble state to actually be good. Like if you do nice things for other people, because you're afraid of what society will, if you're afraid of getting uh, thumbs down on social media, you're not really being good. You're just being afraid of the mob or you're being afraid of the authority figure or whatever. I think you mentioned it, how it's um, uh, our internal audience, when our internal audience is more important than the external one. Uh, That's when we're in master morality. And I connected that to validation because just bringing up the social media example, like when you seek external validation, you're kind of giving your power away to validate yourself to other people. And then you're just a slave to other people's opinion. Yeah, basically. um, Yeah, because it comes down to whose opinion matters more, yours or the other person. Like if you're actually enslaved by someone, well, in your reality is, of course, like their opinions affect whether you eat or not. So that, that, that kind of makes sense. But to be a, like a physically free person uh, and still behave like other people's opinions matter more than your own, you're turning yourself into a slave. 
which is uh, obviously not beneficial. And ultimately, you're not even going to be a good person because you're only going to react to what other people say is good, as opposed to making your own choices. So is the master just someone who follows their inner compass, regardless? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I like I like the term because it's like, you know, obviously none of us are are owning whatever, you know, estates with but like if you if you take that as a metaphor for your reality like are you the king of your reality yes or no and you know it's stuff it ties into stuff you and i have talked about before like if if you are if you're if you're in the master archetype then you're really um you're really taking responsibility for what uh, what you experience as opposed to complaining about external forces so as a master is it possible for a master to be both or either or a tyrant and then a wise king because both are just following uh, their inner compass. The tyrant is doing, you know, he's in his power. He's still doing what he thinks is right. Um, not so much for other people, but for himself. Whereas the wise king is he's doing things while he's aware of other people and the kind of repercussions it could have on them. And I thought back to the, the Lion King metaphor that you brought up with Mufasa and Scar. Like the main difference between Mufasa and Scar is that Mufasa is aware of his subjects, whereas Scar is only in it for himself. Yeah. I mean, yeah, both Mufasa and Scar do live by master morality. Like they're both taking responsibility. It's just once they have power, Mufasa does right by people and Scar is an asshole. Right. And like it's kind of like the thing where um, in our culture now, people are quick to demonize anyone with power because, of course, someone who's an asshole with power can do bad things. Right. Like take the Harvey Weinsteins or, or, or the scars of the world, you know, but so, so like the, the idea is, okay, if people with power are doing these bad things, we need to take away power, which turns everyone to a slave, but people forget there's also Mufasas in the world. And without the Mufasas or the Simbas, the world will be overrun by tyrants, by scars. Like you need, you need, uh, I mean, there's lots of models of explaining this, like um, Colonel Grossman, who's on my podcast calls people uh, either a sheep, a wolf or a sheepdog. Like sheep are people who are basically enslaved morality, who don't, who are basically helpless, which is most of the population. Uh, there's wolves who are assholes who have power, who eat the sheep. But there's also the sheep dogs who also have power, but they choose to defend the sheep. And like, you, I mean, the, the societal implication is you need people who are able to at least fight the, the scars of the world. I know I'm mixing metaphors here, but like, uh, otherwise everyone's going to be overrun by, by, by wolves or, or by scars. Right. And like, that's like, you know, coming down to masculinity. Yeah. It's like that thing of like, if you, if you castrate the male population, there's going to be some assholes who still retain power because they say, fuck you to the group. And they're going to, you're basically like giving more power to the assholes. Like a lot of this, like masculinity shaming, like this toxic masculinity or even the me too movement. I mean, I'm not against it in, in its, uh, in its motive, but like, the only people who were really affected by the Me Too movement were guys who give a shit, right? Like the actual assholes didn't give a shit. It's like all they were doing was attacking, ultimately like affecting guys who were probably meaning to be good in the first place. And then you just have more assholes relative to the population. Anyway, you know, there's like, it's, a, yeah, I mean, strength is the first virtue. If you're not strong enough to do stuff, you can't choose to be good or evil. So there's a neutrality to it. To being a master, it doesn't really have to fall on either side of the spectrum. It could be good, it could be evil. Well, it's like a, it's like a prerequisite to being good or evil, right? Because like if you don't have power, then you can't. I like, guess go back to the clockwork orange thing. Like if you don't have power to affect reality, then you you don't have the ability to be good or evil. You're you're just so what is that power? Someone else's game. Um, well, I think on the on the psychological level, the very first thing is taking responsibility for stuff. Which, uh, which is something I've been thinking about like a lot more, obviously, since I did that episode. I was like, am I actually practicing what I'm preaching here? And it, it made me think like I had to really go into my life of like, where am I complaining about things or people? Where am I resenting stuff? Even little things. And I'm like, every time I'm blaming something that's not m myself, I'm basically going into slave resentment uh, or resentment. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm uh, assuming someone else is in charge of stuff or my experience rather than taking responsibility. Like it's kind of like uh, Jocko's whole thing of extreme ownership is essentially extreme nobility. Like, can you really take responsibility for everything you experience uh, or that you have the ability to influence? 
so I think that's the first thing is like, can you really take responsibility for everything, which is really hard for some people, because if some stuff in your life sucks, you have to own up to the fact that maybe on some level, not obviously not, you're not trying to blame victims necessarily, but like there is something you can control, right? With everything. Yeah. Even the worst experiences, there's always something you could have done differently. Uh, that's, yeah. that's something I've come to realize with the shadow work that I've been doing. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of stuff have you been doing with that shadow work? Um, just, uh, so I'm reframing certain memories that some of them I might've talked to you about, um, mm. during some of our coaching sessions, but just reframing them, uh, going from a less empowered viewpoint. So something with my mom that happened, uh, uh, she was totally wrong for it, but I'm coming more to the realization. I'm seeing her as a little girl and where she was coming from. And I'm taking myself out of it and kind of seeing uh, how I could have reacted differently. So uh, mm-hmm. to sum it up, she rejected me. I felt rejected in a way by her actions. Um, and it was a very strong memory. And it played out. I see it play out in my life a lot of times. But now um, I've been doing a lot of journaling on it and just kind of seeing how, you know, I was the one who internalized that rejection and I allowed it to affect me to the extent that it did. Uh, yeah, it wasn't the best way to talk to your child at the time, but I also have the power to um, kind of give myself that validation that I was seeking from her in that point in time. So it's a, a lot of more, a lot of empowerment from my past Ooh. that I've been working yeah yeah i mean that's the whole thing with forgiveness it's like it's not for the other person although it's nice to have a better relationship with your mom for instance but like when you forgive someone you're basically saying like you don't affect me anymore and it's like that reclaiming of power that you're mentioning which is uh yeah which is important yeah yeah yeah. because like to go through the next i mean there are probably a lot of people in your situation except maybe had a, a very similar experience who blame their mother for like the next 10 years or they blame their mother their whole lives. And of course they don't do anything with their lives or like, you know, it bleeds out into everything else. Like if you think that your mom's actions prevent are preventing you from experiencing something, then of course, how could you take responsibility for the life you want to live? Or how could you create your own reality? If, if, if your baseline assumption is that my mom was able to affect me so terrible, you know, whatever, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's really important. It's really, it's a great way to step out of slave morality into nobility, what you just described. It seems like inner work is the key to becoming a master, almost, because you, you, you can't influence your reality if you're still tied to the past. So it's like the people who actually do influence their reality are those who have let go of their past or work through it enough, because yeah. I don't feel like you ever do let go of the past entirely yeah or get to the point where it feels it's like oh that's interesting like that was oh, that's interesting that that happened to me i mean obviously it's easier said than done but um so this becomes neutral but you said something that's interesting about seeing your mom as a little girl like that's that's uh and it's really powerful it's really cool to be able to see her side of things and and like realize like she wasn't obviously meaning to do anything like she she was working through her own stuff and like and I think on a macro level, like if you choose to have kids or whatever, or anyone you interact with, you, you've you now stopped like this cycle of, I mean, traumas. I don't like to use the word trauma, but maybe it's the only word here. Like, you know, she probably did that to you because of her parents and their parents and their parents. And you've actually stopped a cycle potentially. Right. So you'll treat your kids a little. You're not going to pass that pain on, essentially. Yeah, that resonated so much. And I know the exact experience that she had with her dad where she was rejected in the same manner because she told me and it came up during shadow work and I mm-hmm. literally bawled my eyes out at that point that it was just it was like a, a synchronicity almost young yeah game. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah you ever uh I mean this is non sequitur kind of but you ever uh you know the book uh 100 years of solitude no okay oh well, all right Oh, anyway, it's about, it's like about this family, uh, this Colombian family over like seven generations. And you see like these certain cycles repeat in kind of a funny way, but it's also kind of dark in that you're like, man, it's just like, they're just passing on trauma kind of in a mystical way, the way the book puts it. But anyway, 
Um, the thing you were saying though about um, seeing their side of it, I remember because I know you're, you're on the street in New York, right, or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just remembering like one of the times I really got this is when I was a cab driver in New York because obviously New York traffic is like you know it's easy to get pissed off, but when I was driving every day and making eye contact with other you know rude supposedly rude cab drivers. I realized like we're all dealing with the same shit, which is traffic. Like, so like, I, I just had like this kind of moment of enlightenment while driving a cab, you know, like being pissed off. I'm like, we're all equally pissed off. We're all kind of being assholes to each other because we're all dealing with the same shit. Like I can forgive this guy for honking at me. Like, and it China, it's like all of a sudden it, it, it took away all the stress from traffic. Like I, all of a sudden didn't give a shit about anything. And I was just like, yeah, you know, we're all in this together. Like I kind of like felt a connection <laughs> to the other pissed off cab drivers. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, no one's an asshole on purpose, you know? Right. Um, it's like that empathy, just stepping into other people's shoes and seeing, yeah. because we only ever see things from our perspective, but uh, the same thing that we may be dealing with other people are dealing with as well to varying degrees. Yeah. And you know how someone else got hurt. You know, it's not to say that you should forgive every behavior or not correct someone wronging you, but understanding, you know, if like, you know, the example I like to use is like when someone gets pissed off about something someone says, if, if, if like that same mean comment, let's just say it's like a mean set of words, someone, an insult someone gives you, if it came from a four-year-old, you, you probably laugh at it. Even like think of the meanest thing if a four-year-old said it to you, unless you're really insecure, you probably would laugh at it unless it really hits some, some chord maybe, but like you wouldn't get mad at a four-year-old, right? You might be like, ah, oh, okay. It's like, it's only threatening and insults only threatening if it's coming from someone who you assume can take, can actually detract from you, right? Which a four-year-old we assume wouldn't, which again is kind of like the slave morality thing of like, you know that a four-year-old is just a four-year-old. So you're not threatened by them. You might even feel bad for them for thinking such mean thoughts if they said something rude to you, right? Like, uh, but you can, you know, it's kind of like what you just did with your mom. Like you could kind of imagine the, the guy or the person, the asshole as a four-year-old, and then you're not so upset anymore, right? It's like, it's really recognizing that you are strong enough to not be taken down by a certain punch or something, you know? So in order to be a master, look at everyone like children <laughs> or toddlers. Or, or you know, or, or see yourself as big enough that, no one else can really harm you because like of all this opinion stuff you know if we're using like the analogy of like literal masters and slaves you know when in an actual in a literal master slave situation there's like the whip like the master has some way of actually doing harm but this is all kind of a metaphor for in our real life like a hundred thumbs downs on on YouTube or something is not actually as bad as getting whipped or it's like, doesn't actually affect you, right? It's you're only letting it affect you. So whatever it is or what we know, whatever social thing. So how would you go about being a master without being an asshole or, cause there's a way to be, um, I think you said it in the episode. I don't know if you ended up uh, explaining it. I might have not caught it, but said there's a way of being a master without being an asshole to the slave or coming off as an asshole. Well, it's again, a choice, right? Like um, once you have power, you can choose what to do with it. Uh, You can choose to terrorize people or not. But the thing is, you know, this, this might be a bit of a romanticization, but like if we take this idea that hurt people, hurt people and whatnot, like what does one get out of terrorizing someone like what does one get out of hurting someone and actually if we go if you go into like um you know so i've been i'm still working on this history thing and like uh one example that i came across which is interesting is that when a beta male feels threatened i'm talking about chimpanzees or different primates uh they'll attack the the younger or like anyone subordinate to them right like uh and actually oh no i read this in um John Coates's book, The Hour Between Wolf and Dog, he was talking about like he's comparing middle level managers and on Wall Street to like beta males in a chimpanzee tribe or like the middle level guys. Whenever they feel threatened, they reassert or they get their hormones back up by attacking someone smaller than them. Um, the alpha male doesn't need to do that because the alpha male knows that he's actually the alpha. And you can see this with dogs. Like if you ever see wild dogs or a pack of dogs, the actual alpha is the most chill. The 
the next rung, like the next biggest dogs are like the beta males, like uh, the second tier dogs are the ones who tend to terrorize everyone because they feel inferior to the alpha. So, I mean, I do think this is true for humans, like someone in power who is using their power to terrorize other people probably feels insecure about it. And it's kind of this primal way that we feel better about ourselves by bullying others or terrorizing others. Whereas the actual alpha has nothing to gain from that. Like, you know, if you know that you're the king, why, why force that on other people? Right? If you know everyone respects you, you don't need to like, you don't need to, you know, you don't need to spank people. It reminds me of uh, the winner effect. Uh, yeah. Because you do get power for terrorizing other people or weaker people than you, especially if you just took a loss like those middle managers would have from the higher ups. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. Uh, cause in, in that book, he was saying how when like, a, I don't remember the terms in Wall Street, but like when a certain branch or desk takes a huge loss, he's noticed that's when the middle managers become very aggressive towards their subordinates. It's like, they literally have had a drop in testosterone from this loss. They feel shitty. And the easiest way to bring it back up is by, you know, passing the pain on essentially by like making someone feel inferior. And, um, but when you, when you just made a million dollars from a great trading day, you don't need to do that. You feel great. <laughs> you know, you want right. to go celebrate with people. It's like when you actually, when you actually feel like a winner, you kind of want to raise people up. Like that's a natural thing, unless you're really fucked up or traumatized where you just want to hurt people all the time. But we can say like that kind of trauma or that kind of feeling comes from just like feeling like the ultimate loser, right? Like you need to go around harming people to feel good about yourself. And then on the other end of the spectrum, the alpha, he, where does he derive his uh, winner effect from? The power, like he always feels like he has a million bucks, right? Or he's just made a million dollars. So he doesn't feel the need to, to beat up on other people. Does that come from just uh, having trust and confidence in himself or... Where, where, where does well, that power? I think it, it ultimately comes from winning. Like he earned that status somehow. Um, when we're talking about human beings, like we don't have as strict a hierarchy as dogs or chimpanzees. But yeah, it comes from having actual wins. But then the actual wins come from maybe having the, the mindset of like, I am a winner. Like, you know, it's, um, you know, I think there is a psychological side of it or an inner inner game side of things where you don't take your losses too seriously and you trust that you're always going to have more wins in the future. Like that's kind of the abundance mentality. Like you're trusting more wins are coming in the future as opposed to, you know, everyone has ups and downs on a down day. If you take it so seriously that you let you actually let your, your hormones get depressed and your cortisol rise and you feel shittier and shittier, then yeah, you're going to have a harder time winning in the future. And that's going to just like, you're kind of confirming your reality or you're going to, you're going to confirm your reality of feeling like a loser of like, you know, I mean, I experienced this with my brief time crypto trading of like, can I take a loss and trust that I'm going to win? Actually, this may be a more silly example. I've been playing a lot of chess lately. And I noticed even with chess, because you have a chess rating, if I take a bad loss, the, the rating drops and it's easy to feel shitty. I can, I can even notice like, oh, I'm starting to talk negatively. Like, oh, I'm so stupid, whatever. But if I can like, if I can just silence that, because if I, if I start like going into like, oh, I'm so stupid, I end up losing every other game after that. Like it just like switches something off and become less sharp. But if I can just like not take it that seriously, uh, yeah, you know, I can actually use my abilities. You're not giving your power away to the, to the outcome. Yeah. You're a master. You know that win or lose, you're still decent at chess or however good you are. Yeah. And I guess to bring it to like the mass, like the macro trippy level, maybe like if you really at the core level believe that you influence your reality, then any loss you seem to experience, if you really believe that, then it's, it's really just like a superficial whatever. These are probably the ups and downs. It's like, you know, looking at your portfolio, like I know it's going to go up. It doesn't matter if it went down 10% today. Like I know it's going to go up so I can be chill. And uh, that's ultimately the most pleasant way to go through life. What would you say the role is for slave morality? I feel like it has well, to do a lot with socialization and uh, making sure that people, because let's take a human being, a person is primal, they have urges, and one person unleashed can be a lot. Just thinking of a toddler as a baby in, in master uh, morality, a toddler is always pushing boundaries, they're always curious, um, 
always expanding, uh, very confident in themselves. They don't doubt themselves unless given reason. So if everyone was in master morality, the world would be chaotic. Yeah. Does, does slave morality have, are its implications to socialize people and keep people under control? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think from an anthrop- anthropological view, like, especially when we started coalescing in groups bigger than 150 where people don't know each other, there had to be a split. And like, that's perhaps one of the origins. That's one thing I get into in, in the history podcast. Like once people started forming these big agricultural towns where like no one can, not everyone can know each other. There had to be a divide in classes because like you said, you can't have, a, you know, you can't have everyone being a chief. And um, I think this is the original split. And we could even see this in uh in, in uh, non-human animals, not everyone can be the alpha, right? Like there is a stratification. There has to be winners and losers for the group to function at a certain level. I got a really small group. Maybe everyone can be an alpha, but like once you get past a certain group size, it's not possible. And even like, just with like, you know, human teams, like if you, if you ever worked on a team with a bunch of people, I would guess like, I think six is probably the maximum that like a bunch of really mature people can all be the leader in quotes. Like, I mean, and this is maybe consistent, like with seal teams, like they, they, I think they're only as big as six. Like that's, that's the maximum size because once you go beyond six, someone has to be in charge. Otherwise you can't make decisions. So on like a human economic level, I think there had to be a class divide at some point because, uh, this is even in um in in a brave new world they talk about I don't know if you know the the story but like basically it's like in the future uh, society has uh, broken down into like clear classes like everyone has a letter like either you're an alpha a beta a gamma whatever and you have and that determines your access and like what you're allowed to do in society and they they talk about how they tried to make everyone an alpha and they would just all fight because no one wanted to like do the menial labor jobs. So like they had to like force people into lower classes just so someone just like it's clear of who does what. And this is kind of why we have dominance hierarchies or there's dominance hierarchies in nature, because, you know, if there's a group of, I don't know, wolves or whatever, and there's only enough food for half of them, who gets to eat? Well, the, the top of the, you know, the most dominant ones. Otherwise, you don't know who's going to eat and maybe no one gets to eat. So. Anyway, I don't know. I might, I might have gone off on a, on a tangent there, but. I, yeah, so I think to a degree, there there has to be, I mean, this is an unfortunate part of nature. People might not like to hear this, but there has to be an underclass, particularly when a, when a group gets to be a certain size. Yeah, it's almost a natural result of it, of, a, of being part of society. Mm-hmm. There has to be, for it to function properly, otherwise it's all just chaos. And people trying to, uh, too many cooks in the kitchen would be the same for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I talked about this in, uh, in the, how to be attractive episode, like, you know, dominance hierarchies are all contextual. Right. And I think the best thing someone can do in our modern society is like carve out your little thing, like the thing that you're really good at and really interested in that. And you can cr- basically make yourself at the top of this thing, as opposed to like compete trying to, I mean, the cliche of trying to be like everyone else, you're not going to be the best at everyone else. You're not going to be, you're not going to be the best at trying to be someone else, but you can be the best. You can be the absolute best at being yourself. And that's like your little kingdom. Uh, however big it is, it doesn't matter. And that's where you could feel good about yourself in, in like in the United States or in the world, uh, you know, in terms of the wealth hierarchy, you might not be at the top, but you can still feel really good about yourself in your little, in your world. And I think that's uh, part of being a healthy person and part of being a master. It's like, what is your thing? Um, as opposed to, you know, being in the underclass of everyone else's reality. And I think people who have really high self-esteem, because obviously not everyone can be alpha in every context, but like people with really high self-esteem have found their thing that they feel really good about, right? Like, um, like I feel very good about certain things, but if I, I can go to a situation where I don't, I know nothing, or I feel very incompetent, but if I can recognize that I, I, I matter somewhere, I've done something good with my life somewhere else, I don't have to feel inferior to everyone just because I'm in a situation where I don't know what's going on. Whereas like someone who's not found their thing where they can derive security from, they always feel inferior which maybe is what causes them to be an asshole, or I don't know, maybe not always, but I think, yeah, that's the, that's the social reason to find what you're good at or find your life purpose, you know, 
you can be a better person in every context that way. And they say you usually find your life purpose when you find your passion. And then there's no there's no divide between will and action because your will is your passion. Yeah. 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 So then um, you, good. you almost have to be a master to have any significant impact on the world. Definitely. Right. Like yeah, slaves, if you're in slave morality or slave consciousness, you're not calling any shots. You're just doing stuff for other people. You're making someone else rich. You're, right. you know, uh, you're, yeah. your you're actions are someone tension. else's will. What's that? You're stuck in the tension of being a slave and you yeah. can't focus on anything other else because you're stuck yeah. in other people's dramas. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For, for the book club, uh, for the men's group book club, we were reading The Inner Game of Tennis. And I'm on the I'm on one of the later chapters right now where he's talking about, you know, obviously we all know the importance of focus. You know, the, you know, if you focus on something, you can do better with it. You can be in a more Zen state, all that stuff. But he's saying the best way to be to develop focus and quiet your mind is not by yelling at yourself to quiet or yelling at yourself to focus, but to find something really interesting, right? Like if you're really interested in something, which ultimately would be your passion, you don't, you know, you don't need, you don't need any willpower to force yourself to be interested in what you're interested in. The trick is like finding the things that actually fulfill you as opposed to getting sucked into YouTube or getting sucked into like a social media feed, you know, can you, you know, like right now I'm kind of obsessed with chess. I know I'm, I sound like such a, I mean, I am a nerd. Uh, I need no willpower. I, I'm getting better and better at chess. I don't know if it's going to do anything useful for my life, although I'd like to think so. Um, I'm getting better and better in chess and I need, I mean, I, I'm, I'm fucking upset. Like every time I take a shit or anytime I have like a, some time free, like I want to play another chess game and it's making me better. It's like, there's no resistance there. Um, maybe to the detriment of everything else. <laughs> my, my girlfriend doesn't like how much chess I'm playing. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, fine. It sounds like quite the obsession. In the bathroom yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, because obviously, I, you know, I, I've gotten obsessed with video games or different things. Like I, it, it's nice to be obsessed with something that seems to be improving my, my brain power. Um, but I might just be telling myself that to justify my addiction. I don't know. <laughs> cool. What have you been up to, hobbies-wise, or when you're not doing shadow work? I've been jump roping a lot. I love oh, right. Yeah, you are telling me. You got into that a while ago. Right? Yeah, I've been uh, just learning new tricks, how to double dutch, uh, different leg positions. Um, I've actually found a flow state in jump roping. The other day, I put on a song. And I, I stopped focusing so much on the mechanics of jump roping and more on the music and trying to jump on time with the music. And I managed nice. to jump rope to the entire song uh, while I was more focused on dancing than actually jump roping. Nice. And I thought it was interesting because when I focus on jump roping, I mess up more often than not. And this time yeah. I focused for like two minutes straight without stopping. I know you said you're real busy with school and stuff, but uh, you might like that the book that we're reading for the men's group, um, The Inner Game of Tennis. Uh, it's exactly i mean it's exactly what we're talking about right now um but like yeah finding that interest and flow and like thinking less and finding the perfect action more um have you heard of the weck rope it's kind of a I new have. thing it's like uh i've been using this um this guy i was training with uh in thailand taught me it's like it's basically it's kind of like a jump rope but you don't jump like you swing the rope and it's supposed to teach your body how to um it's basically teaching your left right coordination so i've been doing that a lot and like i can really enter a flow state with it um but yeah it's a similar idea of like you know you just you're just getting into the feeling it just feels good to do it you don't have to think about it so much right it's that middle ground between effort and pleasure where it just blurs off and you go into flow i think that's what flow is honestly Yeah. yeah yeah it is there's a there's a chart for it how much effort you put into something versus how much you enjoy. Yeah. Like and the confidence around. and challenge crossing. Yeah. Cause that's the other thing with master morality. It's like, if you really are in master morality, your idea of leisure isn't doing nothing. It's something I've been thinking about, like with social events, like most normal social events are doing nothing. Like they're going on or like the, the ultimate thing to do with your time is go on vacation and sit on the beach and do nothing or like get drunk and like kind of depress yourself more and like feel less or like eat junk food. Like people, people often get together to just like engorge their senses. 
which makes sense from a slave archetype, uh, you know, perspective. If like all you're doing with your time is stuff that you don't want to do, of course, you're going to try to find relief from that and like basically do less and like take the opportunity to get fat. Right. That's like the ultimate. That's the ultimate. If you're actually in a slave situation, of course, you'd want to do that. You'd want to do nothing. But if you're if you're really the master with your free time, you don't want to do nothing. If you're really if you're if, if you're always doing what you want then on your pleasure time, you want to do more of what you want. Like you want to do challenging things. You want to like, you want to go hiking. You want to explore the world. You want to do challenging things with your body for fun. Um, because why wouldn't you do that? So like a lot of our assumptions of what you should do recreationally come from slave morality, getting drunk and talking about nothing, laying on the beach and sipping Mai Tais and doing nothing. Like that's only fun. That's only yeah, it's only pleasurable if you normally do stuff you don't want to do. It's an escape. You're escaping from what your usual reality is. Yeah. It has enough control over you that you need to get away from it versus just living in it all the time. Yeah. Because the master, the most fun thing for the master consciousness is like, let's see what I'm made of. Right. It's so like when you, th- when you look at guys like, uh, I'm, I'm, Joe Rogan comes to mind or uh, what's the guy who, uh, who yells a lot. This guy who he, he killed a bear. Uh, what's his name? Skipping my mind, but he wears a suit a lot. Anyway, like the I mean, guys who like go out and do challenging stuff. Like they want to see what they're made of. David Goggins is a great example. Like that is master morality. If like with my free time, I want to challenge myself. I want to find that flow state by challenging myself as opposed to making the challenge super low where all I have to do is lay on the beach and get fat. You know, that's the difference. That's a difference. Sounds like fearlessness. You just want to go out there and conquer the world, see what you could do with it. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the best thing a person can do to uh, drive themselves more into master morality? Well, taking more and more responsibility is one thing. And then with that, deciding what you really want to do. It's like getting into like the very simple, I want fill in the blank, right? Like the slave doesn't get a chance to really think about what he or she wants because they don't, they're not in charge of, they can't act on their will. Whereas like, if you're really in the master morality, you should know what you want to do or like you should work towards knowing what you want to do. If you want to take on that archetype, because uh, yeah, what, what will you do? What will you do if you don't have to do anything? You should, I mean, not to say you should, but yeah, I mean, you will find something you want to do if you don't feel any pressure to do anything. And the master usually doesn't, you know, they have all that free time to do whatever they want to do. So logically they would want to do what most interests them. Whereas the slave has to do things. Yeah. Usually a slave has to work for other people. So they're not doing what they want to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this shift you see in like, uh, <clears throat> like landmark is, uh, or a lot of like personal development one-on-one type stuff is like switching your language from, I have to do this to, I want to do this, or I get to do this. Right. It's basically a shift towards like, I'm actually in control of my reality. I'm choosing to do this. And like with, uh, obviously if you're working a job, that you need to work, that you don't really want to work. Everyone's got a little bit of slave morality, like unless you have unlimited money and unlimited and you're like emperor of the universe, of course, there's going to be some limitations. You know, at some point you can't do whatever you want without consequences that you don't want to have. Fine. But we should always work towards that. And like when I'm, when I'm say coaching a guy who's like in a job they don't like, but they need to do, you know, they have certain constraints, which we all have. What I try to direct that person to is like, Let's decide, let's be real with what you really want if you have no limitations and how much of that can you actually do now? Because I think a lot of people, when they're kind of stuck in slave morality, uh, they don't realize how much of what they actually want is already available. They think, oh, I need to have X amount of dollars in the bank account or I need to, you know, I need to, I can only do this after I quit my job. But if someone gets really honest with themselves of what they want, sometimes what they really want is not that hyperbolic thing of a yacht party. Maybe that is what some people want. But like, if you really are in master morality and you have the option for the yacht party or whatever, it's like, you know what? What I really want to do is like build a rocking chair from scratch. It's like, well, shit, you could do that right now. You don't need to quit your job. Like, there's like all these things, you know, like I meet a lot of people who are like, I want to be a writer. It's like, 
while you're writing? It's like, no, I know, I don't, you know, it's like, there's all these things about being a writer that people uh, romanticize about that's far off, you know, like getting validation and this and that. But the actual thing of being a writer is writing. Like, are you writing? Well, then, you know, you can right. be a writer. You just, just, just take some time and write, you know, like a lot of people get mixed up with the, uh, mix up the action and all these like accoutrements that they think are far off and they can't have. Whereas yeah. most of what you, most of what most people want is probably already accessible. Right. And control, you know, uh, there's only so many things that you can control. Even a master, even the master of the universe can only control so much, you know, they can't control whether someone assassinates them. But uh, I, I think you said this in the episode too, when you focus your scope onto what you can control, then you start to see your power come out more because you can work towards those goals, even if it's just small baby steps. Whereas the yeah. slave, he sees those goals and he sees what he cannot control and how far away they are from him. And actually by fully utilizing everything that's within your control, that realm of control becomes bigger and bigger. Like what just came to mind is like, say someone wants to be a musician, there are certain things that are out of your control. Like certain, like one, your talent, maybe you just suck at music and no matter how much you want it, you know, you, you're, you know, whatever, or like, you know, people finding you or Spotify promote or whatever. There's a lot of stuff. Right. But the actual thing you can control is actually playing and playing what you want to play. And the only chance you're going to have at becoming a famous musician is by getting really good by playing a lot. Right. It's like, if you just do a lot of what you can can control, like if you want to be a writer, if you just write a lot, not to say that you're going to become rich and famous as an author, but that's your only chance is by actually doing what you already can control. Whereas someone who complains or like assumes like, Oh, I can never have that. They don't even write. Of course, they're not going to have their, their, their reality is never going to expand, right? It's actually probably going to get smaller if they say I can't, or I don't, you know, no point in trying essentially, as opposed to forgetting about the outcome and just doing what you enjoy, which is the action of writing or whatever thing, then something could happen. I'm curious, how did Nietzsche go about discovering these uh, archetypes? Because they seem to be prevalent everywhere in life. It's just a, a uh, part of being a human. I don't know. I mean, uh, from what I've read, which is not uh, certainly not all of this stuff at all, uh, his uh, when he was writing this stuff about master morality and slave morality, he was kind of fore foreseeing that Europe was moving towards slave morality. And like, cause like, uh, I think the age of imperialism was ending. Um, and like people in Europe were like, like governments were kind of moving towards more socialist uh, policies and culture was moving towards more collectivist uh, ideals. And he was like warning people, you know, over well over a hundred years ago uh, that Europe was going to move into this like kind of slave consciousness, which it's funny reading it now. It's like, that's kind of where we're at now with like call out culture and like, and stuff, you know, it's like, it's like, wow, like he, he, he called it, you know, he didn't, he didn't call some other things like Nazi Germany and stuff necessarily, but he was kind of warning. He, I guess he was kind of warning about the rise of communism uh, and Marxism and stuff that might've actually been his influence. I don't, I'm not sure. Karl Marx is Karl Marx. I don't know exactly. I'm, I'm speculating that Karl Marx uh, influenced Nietzsche's counter thoughts. It's almost like if you're going to be a part of a dominance hierarchy, you're going to fall in either role and you could either be conscious of it or unconscious of it. Just thinking because yeah. he, he based his examples on uh, governments and that's mm -hmm. a structure of power and how it was shifting. So I assume it's just a uh, natural part of being in a dominance hierarchy. And it is because yeah. there are masters and there are slaves at the top. Yeah. The but what I think is most, you know, I'm not trying to restructure society. It's like, being conscious of it in yourself and doing your best to like, even if you're obviously working in a dead end job because you have to or whatever, or you're in kind of like certain slave situations, you don't have control. You can do your best or at least, you know, you at least admit to yourself, okay, like I'm kind of taking shit from my boss because I need the paycheck. Fine. It happens. Right. But don't, don't trick yourself into thinking that you don't have the ability to walk away if you don't want to. It's like, you can choose to take people's shit, right? It, it, you know, I'm not saying that everyone should like say, say fuck you to everyone and then you'll end up, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of homeless people who that's how they end up home. I, I don't know if that's true, but like, you know, you might end up homeless and I'm not saying you should do that. You can make active choices. 
like you said, like being conscious of conscious of what you're doing and doing your best to at least be like, okay, as a, for master consciousness, I'm choosing to take shit from this person because I need the paycheck. And like, that's my choice as opposed to assuming you have no choice, which of course is going to make you less and less empowered. It's, it's like your, it's basically it's your, your basic assumption of reality, right? It's not to say that you need to be king of the world. It's like, can you be king of what you experience and make the choices based on your own, yeah, your own volition rather than assuming you have no control. And the control seems to be more for, from your inner authority versus the outer authority. Like you're, you're either choosing to play in your inner, well, either way you have to play in the outer authority because you have to, you have to play nice with other people in society, but it's like, how, how much do you allow your inner voice compass authority to, to dictate, you know, what you experience outside of you? Do you, do you give more power to that or do you give more power to what you want to do and your desires? Yeah. And and I would invite anyone who's listening to this and like, like, you know, it's like, take some time and think, what if I did everything? Like, what do I actually, I mean, I guess that's the fundamental question. Like, what do I actually want in every situation? Like I'll give like kind of a a mundane example. Recently, I kind of just became, I admitted to myself, I really don't like certain kind of social events. I find them, I always find them kind of boring and I have to kind of fake myself to like get along in like some boring small talk events, right? Uh, something I've been kind of aware of, but I would still go to these events because I like the people there and I want them to like me. So I end up doing these things that don't really interest me, right? What if I just stopped doing that? And the worst, and I, I, that's what I've been doing. I just stopped going to all social events that don't interest me. Um, the only consequence is maybe these people who weren't, I wasn't, who I liked, but I wasn't really close with in the first place. Maybe they think I'm a jerk now. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe they understand, but it actually doesn't even matter. Even the worst case scenario doesn't matter. And I'm actually happier because I spend more of my time doing what I actually want to do, like play chess. You know, I mean, and among other things, I have a life outside of nerd shit, but like things that I actually find interesting um, as opposed to like, uh, yeah, as opposed to doing something that is, is actually making my, I'm actually just by going to events like that, I was reinforcing my slave consciousness of like, oh, I need to do these things I don't want to do for something other people can control, which is their validation, which doesn't even matter to me in the first place. And I would, you know, I would challenge someone to like look through everything in their life, right? Like again, with your job, maybe you can't, maybe, maybe, maybe it's the, maybe it's what you choose to do is work at the job you don't like for the money. Maybe that, that's your choice, but at least recognize you have the option to quit, right? You have the option to say, fuck you and spend some time living on your savings or doing some other thing, you know, for what you really want. Um, because the worst thing would be to go through 30 years of your life or whatever and realize, oh shit, I spent, I wasted, I wasted my adulthood. Um, and there's all this stuff I could have been doing. It's funny. I mean, um, so I mean, I'm, I'm writing a book about my time in my mid twenties. So I'm going through all my journals, uh, you know, to, to look through the notes. I've taken pretty good notes throughout my life of what's going on. And there's a bunch of things that consistently I'm like, fuck, like I feel a little bit of like a twinge of regret because I made the wrong decision looking back. And almost always it was like kind of a slave decision. It was like based on something of like, oh, I need to be responsible. Or like, I mean, a lot of things were like, oh man, I can't do this thing because it's financially irresponsible. I'm like, fuck, I should have, I should have, I should have got on that plane. Like that's actually one time, like I bought a, a one-way ticket to Mexico. I was, I was kind of broke. And I was like, okay, in three or four months, whenever this plane ticket is, you know, I trust the universe. I'll have more money in my bank account. And I could enjoy this thing. The time came, I didn't have more money in my bank account. I was like, oh, fuck, I can't, I can't go on the, tri- on the trip. It'd be irresponsible. Right. I look back and I'm like, man, I should have went on the fucking trip because I, eventually I had more money anyway. Like I should, I, I robbed myself of like an adventure the worst case scenario is out of my bank account when I went to zero and I would have to figure something out. I don't know what I would have done, but like, I would have been fine. Like now, obviously I could look back with hindsight, but like I would have been fine and I would have had an amazing experience. And instead I stayed in New York working restaurant jobs and ultimately not having money in the first, in, in, in the last place anyway. So like, and there's a bunch of stuff like that. Like, man, I should have just done what I, I should have at least admitted to myself that I had control. And I assumed I didn't. Um, anyway. <laughs> that reminds me of a abundance mentality, just trusting the future. You did trust the future. Then you try to control it so much. Like, I'm going to have this money by the time I get there. And then when you yeah. came, 
you could have chosen to continue to trust the future, but you know, your 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 logical, responsible mind told you not to. Yeah. And I'm not saying you should always do the reckless thing. Like I'm glad that I've saved money and stuff like that. Like I know people who always trusted things would work out and they, you know, they, maybe they did, but they still, you know, they're in their thirties and they have no savings. Like, you know, you have to make the decision, but I think the real thing is like really being conscious of where you have, where you're making an active choice rather than letting external things decide for you. You know, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And I think that's the mental health piece of it. Like if you can recognize where you're always making the choice and where you're feeling agency, you don't have to fear the future because you can trust that, okay, whatever happens, I'll figure it out or whatever happens. I, I can in the future, make another active choice, you know, even if the worst that's out of my control happens. And it seems like once you make the choice, the happiness comes back to you in one way or the other. Like you said, like you stopped going to those parties because uh, first of all, you're not, I don't take you for the small talk kind of guy. You're definitely not the small talk kind of guy. But like you said, you became happy, happier after you stopped going to those parties. So it's like, you know, you were trying to control the way that these people saw you. You let go of that control and suddenly happiness comes back to you. Yeah, yeah. That, in that moment. And I think I might have might have mentioned this in the, in the Nietzsche episode, but there's a line from the book Shantaram, which is like one of my favorite books where the guy is based on a true story. The guy's in prison. He's being tortured by these guards. And he has this kind of moment of enlightenment where he's like, I actually have the choice whether to hate them or not. And I don't have to hate them. Right. And he chooses not to hate them. And even though he's physically getting tortured and it friggin' sucks, like that's literal. I mean, that's about as slave situation as it gets. Like he has no control over his physical reality. He still has control of how his mind thinks and he feels peace, you know, and he has an opportunity. He can choose peace in his mind as opposed to choosing turmoil. And uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, easier said than done, but that's, that's, you know, that's real control over your reality. Yeah, that's powerful to be subjected to that. Still. Yeah. And to really forgive the people torturing him, he had to trust that he was going to be okay. Or he had to like, you know, he had to believe that, okay, you can't, I mean, he had, he had to assert that they can't really bring him down in his mind, at least, even though, even if they could whip his body or whatever. Yeah. So, <laughs> cool. yeah, it's always fun talking to you, man. Yeah, you too. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. My first time diving into niche nobility. There's a lot of interesting things in that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I, I, the first time I read Nietzsche was in college and it, a lot of it just went over my head. I just didn't get it personally. Like, honestly, only recently am I, do I feel like, oh, I, I kind of get it now. You know, I don't know if I had to have, you know, or whatever. I had to get smarter, I guess. But like, <laughs> like it's like, it's, uh, yeah, so anyway, I'm, I'm glad it's, it's becoming more accessible and stuff. I think it's very relevant for what's going on in society these days. For sure. Yeah. Cool, man. Let's talk again soon. Yeah, let's do it.